Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. My name's Marshall. <laughs> you almost got me again. <laughs> you waited. I With was With the delay, I did. Patience, right? Yeah. One of the fruits of the spirit. Uh, one that I struggle with in particular, this confession time. Um, if uh, if anyone hears some some background noise during the pod today, it's because we have our moms and munchkins group going and there are a ton of kids downstairs it's beautiful mayhem it is <laughs> it was a lot more they were, the plan was like okay first week out you know we'll you know we'll have a few people and we'll kind of game plan what this thing's gonna look like it's a zoo it's a and it's a beautiful zoo but uh yeah even, even beautiful on. mayhem is still mayhem it is <laughs> so if you hear if you hear stuff in the background it's uh it could just be from from that which uh we're not we're we're happy about yeah it's, a it's exciting thing. yeah it's very exciting yeah. i've gone down there a couple of times yeah just to say hi to the kids yeah and to get coffee which uh, i made this morning because i was teaching jay chris our children's ministry director how to use those ginormous coffee pots yeah and apparently she told me that people were complimentary of my coffee making so. yeah well your wife stopped me and said that's not for you <laughs> Did she really? <laughs> and I said, your husband refused to make me coffee this morning because it was down here, so I have to get it somewhere. <laughs> That's so funny. She said, don't you have a cure? <laughs> Do you not have interns yet? <laughs> Next week. <laughs> Next week. But this week, what are we talking about, Tim? We're talking about the 12th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a couple more, uh, couple more crusades. Yep. Couple of crusades, couple of them, yeah. Uh, which will still not be the end of them. No. Um, we got a pretty, uh, pretty influential monk, mm-hmm. and then some some things that I that you have pointed out to be pretty significant talking points, mm-hmm. but live kind of on the fringe of history. Sure, yeah. That will be fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Start yeah. us off. Well, let's let's start by kind of sharing some things. We we do this every every couple of episodes. We kind of drop some things that are going on in the world around this time period. So during the 12th century, so from 1100 to 1199, I guess. Um, Some of the things that I I picked up, um, thanks to the internet. In 1104, in the city of Venice, they create something called the Venice Arsenal, which 16,000 people were employed in, and they mass produce ships in a type of assembly line. Which is, I mean, this predates the Industrial Revolution by hundreds and hundreds of years, but they're just pumping out ships like crazy. Hmm. And uh, these, so Italy as we know it didn't really exist until very, very recently in history. Um, so you had a lot of these little city states that became extremely wealthy through shipbuilding and commerce, and Venice was one of them. So 16,000 people working together to, to pump out boats as fast as they could. That's a pretty. It's a pretty big operation for the Middle Ages. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, between 1130 and 1180, there is a 50-year drought in on our side of the world in the American Southwest. Uh, there were civilizations that were living there, cities and, and you know, small nation states uh, that are, many of them are wiped out because there is this extended drought that lasts for, for 50 years. And they know this um, through 
geology and also through um you know traditions that were passed down but mm. uh but yeah pretty pretty intense wow um in 1170 the catholic doctrine of purgatory is defined yeah um, so it took them a while to get there but it's it's hung around right because the bible's a long book some people, some people read it in a year because they're eager. Mm. Sometimes it takes a church a thousand years <laughs> to get to that part. <laughs> the was part, was the that part, too much? Was the, that too spicy? A little spicy. The part that doesn't exist. Um, there's some spice for you. Okay. Um, also, uh, the construction of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris begins in 1163. Um, but it takes like, um, like almost 200 years for it to be completed. Right. But, uh, but that's pretty cool. I mean, I've, have you been, I've, I've been there actually. I never got to go. So I, I was there when I was, I don't know, 2004 would have been like 14 or 15, 13 or 14. Anyways, um, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool building. Um, yeah. I know there's been, there was a fire a couple of years ago that damaged part of it. Yeah. That was my question. I don't know how much of it is left. Uh, most, okay. most of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was some significant damage to a part of it, but they've already begun reconstructing it. It's, so un it's unfortunate because of how old the building is, but mm -hmm. yeah. Um, first windmills, 1185. 1185. Which is later than I would. Green think. energy. Yeah. I just, I would have thought, I would have thought windmills would have, uh, would have existed a long time before then. For some reason, in my mind, I'm just like, yeah, they've got ship factories, but not windmills. Anyways, did you have anything for that? No, era? no, no, we're good. We're, we're good. good. Yeah. Okay. So we left off at the end of the first crusade in 1099. The kingdom of Jerusalem has been established. Oh, goody. <laughs> it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. They were these little pockets of Europeans uh, who had virtually no fighting force left mm -hmm. trying to rule over a majority Muslim population surrounded by like deep, deep, deep into enemy territory. Right. Um, so it, it doesn't it doesn't go great. Um, there are some groups that emerge, though, in this kingdom of Jerusalem that have kind of come down to us over the course of history as um you know kind of almost there's like a, a lure around them oh yeah right 100 so the first one is probably less known than the second but the first one is the knights hospitaller also known as the knights of saint john um yeah and they're they're called hospitaller because they're actually connected to a hospital that existed in jerusalem mm -hmm. so in Jerusalem, there is a hospital where pilgrims would be cared for, for free, actually. This was free health care, again, 900 years earlier than, than anywhere else. Um, and so they served in the hospital, but then they also began providing military escort to help pilgrims um, stay safe on their journeys. And they became one of the most elite fighting forces in the medieval era. Yeah, you know, things like hospitals and education, we're going to talk about both. We've already as evidenced by the fact that we've already talked about one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, these things these things are very connected to the church early on. Mm -hmm. The church is very much a part of these things. Mm -hmm. And it's not until much later that they become state things. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I think it would be maybe surprising for some, although, you know, 
the hospital I was born in was at the time called St. Edward's. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Baptist hospitals and Catholic hospitals, Jewish hospitals abound oh, yeah. uh, throughout the states. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, even even here in Canada, the what is now the public school system was the Protestant school system until not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the Catholic system remains uh, for the time being, but we'll see. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, but the other group of these knights that is even more famous were the Templars, the Knights Templar. They were founded in 1119, and they were called that because they were headquartered on the Temple Mount of Solomon. Right. Uh, in Jerusalem itself. Their full name, this is fun, was the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon. Yeah, and then they shortened it with a couple of three different names. Knights Templar seems to be the one that sticks in modernity. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so they grew. They grew, their order grew to, you know, have tens of thousands of people uh, in it. But uh, when I was doing my research, I read that up to 90% of their order were actually non-combatants. Right, and I think that's important to note. You look at the size of the Knights Templar and how big it grows, mm-hmm. and the fact that they're recognized as a as an elite fighting force, mm-hmm. a force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. Maybe their greatest contribution is banking. Yeah, modern banking. Yeah, um, which is a bit fascinating. And and I, I want to say, this is a church history podcast, not a history podcast. Right. We understand that, mm-hmm. but. All of these things are being raised up by the church. Yeah. So when, we, when we're talking about military orders, um, we're talking about military orders brought to be by the church, yeah. funded by the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so it's, it is important to look at these things and think, well, can you imagine if the greatest fighting force in Canada... Mm-hmm. Was raised up by the Feb, the Feb, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, yeah. Fair That's enough. just the way it goes. Right. Not, not the state, no, but the, <laughs> a denomination within the country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, yeah. the, the Templars were only answerable to uh, to the Pope himself. Eventually, um, so they they became extremely powerful for a time. Uh, one of the cool things what you mentioned the banking, so. The way they set set this up, they had this financial network with all these different kind of checkpoints and locations. And so what they would do is as people were traveling, particularly traveling from Europe to the Holy Land, what you would do is you would drop your wealth off, let's say in Italy somewhere or in Germany or wherever, wherever, you know, in, in friendly territory, you drop it off and you get a certificate. Mm-hmm. That outlines what you, what it is that you dropped off, a how check. much gold, how much silver. Essentially, yeah. Right. And then you would travel to the Holy Land without having to kind of carry all that stuff with you or be robbed of those things mm-hmm. on your way. And then when you get to Jerusalem or one of the other cities in the Holy Land, you present it and they return the funds to you that way. Um, and so this was like, I mean, again, another thing that's just kind of way ahead of its time. Um, and so, yeah, and so... Through that, they become extremely powerful, extremely wealthy. Um, later on, we probably won't talk about it because it's not a major issue, but later on, they end up being ousted in the 1300s because the king of France owes them a ton of money mm-hmm. uh, because of his wars he's waging against England. And so he convinces the Pope to excommunicate them, and then they're essentially destroyed. On uh, Friday the 13th. 
Oh, was it really? I didn't know that's that. The, that's the major <sighs> attack. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Ooh, A lot of cool. people like to try to tie the superstition mm -hmm. to that event. Mm -hmm. um, the superstition ev existed loosely before, okay. connected to Fridays and 13s. Okay. Doesn't really come into a conversation of the two combined until like 18th, 19th century. Interesting. Uh, kind of fiction journal, uh, fiction novels, uh, sort of scene. Hmm. But uh, but yeah, on a Friday the thirteenth. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's why we don't have Templars anymore. The oh, but some would say. Oh, but the Assassin's Creed video games would say. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> some would some would say right that this is. That they went underground, and this is where the Freemasons rose sure. from. Yeah, because the Masons do have a lot of connections with the uh, with the temple as well, right? Right. The Masonic temple. Not not a lot of historical backing for that. Yeah, but that is the super fun urban legend. Yeah, because I think the Masons came out came out of Scotland, if I'm yeah not wrong, in the 1700s, I think. So so there's a big there's going to be a big gap there. So so who knows? But, but sometimes it's better not to have the facts mm -hmm. and to just go with the fun story <laughs> because it's a fun story to think yeah. that the masonic temple in your town was actually some elite night group that <laughs> formed on the temple mound <laughs> thousand yeah. years ago yeah seriously all right well um so around the same time there is a new monastic movement going on the cistercian movement mm -hmm. and it began in 1098 so a little bit before the 12th century uh by a benedictine abbot Remember, the Benedictines were a reform of a previous monastic movement. Um, and so he and a bunch of other monks, they left because they felt that the other the others had abandoned the strict rule that had been set out before. This is kind of the same theme that just kind of repeats itself throughout history mm -hmm. with monastic movements. It's like, you know, oh, they've lost the plot. They're not serious enough. They're enjoying their life too much. And we need to be more miserable. So let's... <laughs> sorry, that's maybe a pessimistic way to look at it but it, it's kind of like it they they feel like people they they've become too lax and so they go off and start a new thing and then that becomes the fad for a hundred years or so no until... it, it's not the fad for a hundred years or so it, it's the fad forever we yeah. we even today oh sure have yeah. churches that are popping up saying mm -hmm. those churches have so for instance i have a friend who they left their church and they joined this other church because churches had gotten too far away from things. And they were mm -hmm. going to go back to the church in Acts and meet like the church in Acts, mm -hmm. which is always a red flag because there isn't really a great description of what the church in Acts was doing. Mm -hmm. They were all different, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so they're like, you know, family groups, meeting in homes, no one who's really a leader— which mm -hmm. is interesting because all throughout the New Testament, we do have pastors and overseers put into place and all and, those kinds of things. And deacons. But, but the whole thing is churches have generally gotten out of touch with what they were supposed to be, and we're mm -hmm. going to go back and do the real thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And then a year later, they're like, yeah, well, this guy's leading us, and we're looking for a place because we're too big to fit in anyone's home. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you're like... You're just planning a church. You don't have yeah. to be... If you want to do the whole, like, we're going to plant a church, plant your church. Go for <laughs> it. But you don't have to disparage other people right, right. in order to get there. But that's what happens, right? It's yeah. always like, we're going to do it right. We're yeah. going to do it right. Yeah. And, and not realizing, you know what? In some instances, maybe you don't understand 
exactly what that church is doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. they are doing it right, and it just looks different than you thought it would. Sure. In 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 play, mm-hmm. uh, it, in some instances, maybe that's the case. Yeah. Maybe you you do need to find a place that is doing it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but these concepts of just constantly reforming mm-hmm. and and changing and trying to find the deeper, the righter way to do it. Yeah. And Europe just becomes flooded with mm-hmm. monasteries in oh, this yeah. time. Oh, yeah. And I, I think the word flooded is interesting because here's a, here's a little historical, a geo-history of Europe for you. All of these monasteries, guys are going into them with the desire, as you said, to live the hardest life possible. Mm-hmm. What's the toughest, hardest life possible? They they don't have any money, yeah. Right? They are giving their money away. Mm-hmm. They're so they're only able to occupy the most undesirable land. Mm-hmm. And and aside from prayer and religious piety, they also want physical hardship mm-hmm. in many cases. And historically, Europe is a swamp. Mm. swamps on top of swamps connected to swamps. <laughs> and that's where a lot of these monasteries get built. Mm. You can't build massive monasteries and facilities on swamps. Mm-hmm. So they go about digging canals and trenches and terraforming. Mm-hmm. And Europe has been altered mm. to become a more useful landmass in large part because of the work of these monasteries. Oh, yeah. And yeah. these guys who were just free labor mm-hmm. because they were seeking some level of religious asceticism mm-hmm. in their lives, of, of being, being harder on myself and, and living a, a simpler, hands-on, dirty life. Mm-hmm. And so a lot, of, a lot of Europe that was uninhabitable swamp mm-hmm. is now habitable land, mm-hmm. cities built. On yeah. these places, mm-hmm. because of the terraforming work yeah. that these guys were doing, so their their work goes beyond uh, just spiritual reform. Yeah. It's actual geographic yeah. reform. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah, they're and because they're going to be heavily involved in like in everything from agricultural production to textiles to like th- there there's there's. In in many of these monasteries, they're actually going to become economic centers mm-hmm. in of themselves, and there's going to you know it might start with a little group of monks who build a little church and some a place to live and you know a, a vegetable garden, but it quickly becomes sometimes you know almost like small cities unto themselves mm-hmm. uh, with schools and and people lay people living there who are also kind of cooperating in some of the the activities that are going on right. So there are brew houses operating today. Mm-hmm. That are older than the period we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's which is crazy. Yeah, the monks they did like to make their their beer. That's for sure. Um, so one of the main centers of this new Cistercian movement was a place called Cito, and in eleven twelve, there's a young nobleman who shows up there with thirty five of his friends and relatives, who all want to join the monastery. Mm-hmm. Thirty five friends and relatives. Like that's a that's a group. Um, and, and it makes me wonder. Now, I know there were nunneries as well. I understand mm-hmm. that. That yep. young women were also, you know, becoming nuns. But there weren't as many women becoming nuns as men becoming monks. Uh, there was a significant gap, actually. And it just makes me wonder, like, what did 
what does that do to like like just to the society as a whole right like like just you have like you have a significant amount of men just like deciding to give up marriage and procreation whatever like i know for a lot of like noble families it became a problem because you know one of the sons would go off to become a monk the other son dies in battle suddenly Mm -hmm. who's the heir right right what do we do and now it's some nephew or it's like the the husband of the daughter who didn't become a nun or whatever anyways it creates issues but anyways bernard shows up and he's a bright guy he's disciplined he's devoted do you know the story of how Bernard showed up with 30 friend, 35 friends? I don't. Relatives? No, I'd love to know it. Okay, so here's here's this, the legend okay. of what will become Bernard, also known as Bernard the Honey-Tongued. Yeah. Uh, so he decides very early on, grows up in a Christian home, a pious Christian home, I'm giving my life to God from the beginning. Wow. His parents had other plans, mm-hmm. apparently. Tried to convince him, and he couldn't be convinced. They put together a legion of people to convince him Mm. who came one after the other individually to convince this young teenage boy not to go into the monastery, but to stay. Mm. And by the end of it, all 35 of them, friends and family, Mm -hmm. had been converted. (laughs) Not only only was he able to tell them no, (laughs) but he sent them packing. Right. And many of them were like, you know, friends and cousins Mm -hmm. of a peer group. Mm -hmm. A good portion, reportedly, are uncles Mm. and married men that had to go back to their wives and say, free me from this marriage because I'm going to serve God in the the monastery with Bernard because it was just an absolute backfire. Yeah. Uh, And so he starts... Day one, he enters the monastery. Actually, pre-day one, mm-hmm. he enters the monastic order with a significant following. Yeah, with a movement behind him. Yeah, and so within, he's only there for like three years at Claire at um, at Citeaux before he is asked to go establish a new monastery at Clairvaux. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this guy, young man, comes in, and within three years, they're like, "You're you're going to be our." church planter we could yeah. we could say that um, this is actually one of those places that gets significantly terraformed oh yeah it's it's a swampland he mm-hmm. changes the name of the area mm-hmm. to clairvaux mm-hmm. um the clear view mm-hmm. uh because of the work that's been done to make it habitable mm-hmm. and so not only does he not only does he have a following from the beginning he shows up and instantly becomes the leader of mm-hmm. the new place that he goes to. Mm-hmm. He even walks in, he's like, this region that you've been calling by whatever name, mm-hmm. it, it now is this. And was like, okay. <laughs> and we're going to make it so. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so people are just flocking to this monastery. Um, and things are going really well. There's a bit of a bump in the road um, where when, when Bernard is away, the grand prior of Cluny, uh, Clooney was probably one of the biggest abbeys and part of a different, wasn't part of the Cistercian movement. Uh, he stole away Bernard's cousin while he was gone. Like, trying to sheep stealing was happening back then. Even. It happens. It happens. Um, but, but regardless, you know, he was a well-known preacher. Like you said, uh, the honey tongued, um, he wrote hymns, some of which are still sung today. I found three that he are attributed to him in our hymnals that we have here at the church. Really? We don't use the hymnals very often anymore, but I found three 
hymns that are attributed to him. Now they've been translated from French to sure, English. Sure. Jesus, the very thought of thee. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, and O sacred head now wounded. Oh, yeah. All attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux. Now, I know Jesus, the very thought of thee, and I've, I, I don't know how to sing the other two, but maybe if someone else was leading, I could probably follow along. Mm-hmm. They sound vaguely familiar. But in any case, uh, yeah, so he wrote extensively. He wrote books, he wrote letters, he wrote poems, he wrote songs. Um, he studied poetry and literature just so he would have a greater understanding of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's his dedication to the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and um, you know Bernard, Bernard, like 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 a lot of the great minds of medieval Christianity, he articulates certain things so wonderfully, right? He he gets certain things really really right, and he gets some things really really wrong. I this is going to lead us on a thing. Okay. But before we get to that thing, one fun fact. Okay. In order to be recognized as a saint, mm-hmm. there have to be a number of miracles okay. attributed to your your work, right? Okay. Uh, we haven't talked about these things since Nicholas. Right. Uh, but some of them are fun. Okay. And Bernard has a couple of fun ones. Okay. One of them is that he granted a man born mute the ability to speak on his deathbed so that he could confess his sins and not die apart from the favor of God. Wow. Which is fascinating doctrinally. Sure. That you would assume that the mute, because they can't verbalize their confession, are condemned. Are condemned by their natural state. Right? It's that's that's tragic doctrine. It is, yeah. Uh but but the venerable Bernard of Clairvaux was able to save this poor man in that moment when okay. he needed it most. Nice. And the other is that there was an infestation of flies in uh, a particular uh, church that they just couldn't do anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernard is called upon as he's traveling through on one of his many journeys. He's called upon to see what he can do about it. Mm-hmm. He asks for... The church's canons um, and opens the book and excommunicates the flies, all of which instantly fall to the floor dead. Wow. Excommunication (laughs) of the flies. Wait, does he exercise or excommunicate? I think, it said, I think it said excommunicate. Oh, really? Okay. I'll have to, I, now you've got me wanting to double check that. Anyway, yeah. anyway, preacher walks into the room, <laughs> reads a book, flies die. <laughs> and it's attributed as one of his miracles. Oh, man. There's a parallel that I could talk about right now, but I'm not going to at our church, but I'll tell you later because I think it's hilarious. Um, so but with Bernard of Clairvaux... Um, He's quoted later on in the Reformation by John Calvin and Luther. Uh, they, yeah. they actually quote him on multiple occasions, particularly in, in their expression of sola fide, so being saved by faith alone, right. um, and in the idea of how Bernard um, describes the idea of imputed righteousness, which means mm-hmm. that the righteousness of Christ is, is given and applied to sinners. So it's not that we get a newfound ability to be righteous. It's not that our, just that our slate is wiped clean 
And now we, you know, we walk in holiness because of that, but we're actually given the righteousness of Christ. Right. So God doesn't see us as righteous. Mm -hmm. God sees Christ as righteous Mm -hmm. and he sees us as in Christ. Exactly. Yeah. Um, There's, I've got a couple quotes here from Bernard that I thought might be nice. I I studied him a little bit in, in, when I was doing church history and amongst the medieval church fathers, there's a, he has a way about him that just kind of sticks with me. Um, so in, in, in regards to the pursuit of knowledge, he says, there are those who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That's curiosity. And there are those who seek knowledge to be known by others, and that is vanity. But there are those who seek knowledge in order to serve, and that is love. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, he's very relational mm-hmm. in a lot of his teaching. He also said, uh, to have a restful or peaceful life in God is good, and to bear a life of pain in patience is better, but to have peace in the midst of pain is the best of all. Um, so yeah, and I'd say of his works that I'm f- that I'm familiar with, he wrote a lot, but he wrote um, a, a book on, on loving God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that book on loving God, he kind of describes, uh, four, I guess, motivations or levels of, of love for God, which I find really, um, four degrees, right? So he talks about how we love God kind of for our own sake, right? So there's a sense in which, you know, we, we love God, um, just because it's almost selfish of us to do so, right? That we we can't, yeah, for, for self's sake. And then he talks about how, like, you know, there's another degree where we we love God um, for his sake, but but still selfishly, right? We, we, we see them, we see him as something necessary for our own well-being. Right. Right? Yep. So we're like, so it's not just the first level is like, we, we, we love God because we want things from him. And then we realize we love God because we need things from him because, because we're, we, he is necessary for our existence. Um, then there's to love God because he deserves it because he's de- because of who he is. Um, and then finally it's loving God for God's sake. Um, essentially loving God because, um, that is, that is just what he demands and who he is. Right. So it's not even just because we see beautiful things about him, but because that is essentially just, the reason for which we're created. Because he is worthy of our praise. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so yeah. he kind of lays that out, these different, you know, this different way of loving God, which I found really um, impactful. And you can find that online anywhere, essentially. You can you can read it in, in modern translations. Yeah, I, I would say, I would say of papal figures that we've talked about mm. for for some time, he he really is... He really has attributes and elements of his teaching that are great devotionally mm. for yeah. a, a Protestant today. Yeah, in, in a way that in a way that others for five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred years before him wouldn't have been. Yeah, and will not be after him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then he, again, he also even expands teachings on Mary. Yeah, he's a he's a big fan on Mariology. 
So yeah, she, her as an intercessor. Yeah. So yeah, he went beyond the whole like she lived a sinless life, but that she was the primary mediator mediator of the grace of Christ to humanity. Right. So instead of it being we have we have God and humanity, and the mediator is Christ, who is both fully God and fully man. Right. Medieval doctrine tend to kind of underplay the humanity of Christ to a point where there was still too much space. There's too much space between Christ and humanity, even though Christ himself articulates differently mm-hmm. um, and scripture articulates differently. They insert Mary and then also other various saints, but but per- her in particular as a, a mediator between the mediator and us. So we, they, they kind of, they're like, well, no, we're, we're too, we're too sinful. We're too base. And so Christ can't really be our mediator. It has to go through Mary and then Mary to us. And that's kind of the reasoning for, for why they, they get in all this stuff. Right. And, and he leans heavy into the gap between, um, or not, not the gap between, but he leans heavy on Jesus as being a product of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and this fantastic righteous right. woman Mary. Right, right. And so the two of them combined mm-hmm. bring about this Jesus who is the sacrifice on our behalf. Mm-hmm. Um as if her contribution I don't know I don't think he would say is on par with that mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely elevated mm-hmm. above the humble circumstances that we see Mary in and in mm-hmm. and in how she expresses herself and her mm-hmm. contribution in scripture. Yeah, so they would see Mary's Mary's sinlessness was necessary for Christ's humanity to be sinless as well. So they kind of push it back, right? So Which it, is always fun because it would take a sinless mother to bear a sinless Mary. Well, and that's where we get into the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which isn't right. articulated. Again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Isn't articulated till like the 1800s or something, or maybe it's the 1900s. Right. Forgive me for not knowing the date, but in any case, um, so Bernard's not even there yet. But but, yeah, that, he, but that's I'm just going to hit on this. Sorry. Yeah. Around you, wherever you are, mm-hmm. there's a chance that there's an Immaculate Conception something. Yeah. I always grew up thinking that was. The Immaculate Conception of Jesus. Mm-hmm. No. In Mary through the Holy Spirit, it's not. Yeah. If you have, a, if there's a Roman Catholic something called Immaculate Conception, it is about the, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. There's a church, I think there's a church here in Stratford called Immaculate Conception. I don't know. It's the little Catholic church on the little side street that, that is closed most of the year. But um, anyways, um, yeah. So yeah, he wrote, uh, God has willed that we should have nothing which would not pass through the hands of Mary. So that kind of mm-hmm. summarizes where he's at. So Bernard is still very medieval and still very Roman Catholic in spite of his wonderful devotional teachings on loving God. Um, yeah, it, we'll, we'll get to this l- later. We, we got to, Bernard covers a span of a couple of things we need to talk about. Yes, he does. Including a papal schism and yep. a second crusade. Yep. When he writes to one of his students, Spoiler alert, who will become the Pope. Mm-hmm. His, this man becomes the Pope, and he's so given to Bernard as his mentor mm. that he asks him for advice, and he writes to him the Book of Consideration. Mm. And two of the things that 
are stressed in that book of consideration is there should be no action without prayer. Okay. Preceding yeah. it with prayer. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, sure. He also calls them back to reading the scripture mm. as the foundation of the church mm -hmm. because the church had gotten so far away from the reading of the Bible that he had to come back and emphasize you need to bring the Bible back into your practices. Mm -hmm. Your church leaders need to read the Bible and know the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that's where he has those great devotional thoughts and some really great reform mm -hmm. uh, of, of things that, that you mentioned earlier about the, the concepts of sola fide and the imputed righteousness. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, yeah, extra biblical things. Sure. Yeah. So Bernard, as you said, was was so influential. Even when he was still a relatively young man, um, he was deeply involved in affairs beyond his monastery due mm -hmm. to this status. And so one of the one of the big ones that comes up uh, is a papal schism which took place in the year 1130 um, and lasted for eight years. So what happens is on February the 13th, 1130, Pope Honorius dies. And immediately there's a group of six cardinals that quickly elect his successor, Pope Innocent II. But there are a lot more than six cardinals, like mm -hmm. like a lot more, like dozens, right? So, so the rest of the cardinals aren't happy about this because six of them in the middle of the night decide to elect the successor. And so they're ticked off. So they choose a guy named uh, Anacletus II and they elect him Pope. And so now... Both of these popes are from rival family groups and political factions in Italy. Okay. Extremely political, deep family, like, like kind of those family feuds that we read about in like Romeo and Juliet. Right. It's that. Yeah. They hate each other. The Capulets and the Montagues. Yeah. It's essentially not literally, but it's, it's like that. Um, and so Anacletus's supporters, they take control of Rome. Uh, because he has the support of the majority of the cardinals and the families and all this in Rome. And so Innocent II flees the city. And so he decides to go on tour. And he goes to France, where he sees Bernard, and to Germany. And he meets with various influential clergy and kings, the kings of Germany and French nobility, the king of England, to get their support. And, and he gets it. So you have this weird thing where you've got one pope who's in Rome, who was elected by the cardinals, which is the, the system that they had devised to select popes mm -hmm. and has control of the city in that region, who is the bishop seated in Rome. And you have another pope who is not in Rome, uh, who was dubiously elected, we might say, but has the support of the people on the outside, on the on the fringes and, and, and the monarchs and whatnot. So it creates this really awkward um, situation. And so... Innocent, uh, who's the one who flees, he calls councils Interestingly to, named. Innocent, yeah, well, yeah, none <laughs> of these popes were innocent, let me tell you, especially the ones named innocent, actually, if you read about them. But in any case, um, he calls councils to ratify his papacy and then excommunicate Anacletus and his supporters, which is interesting. You're going to excommunicate the majority of the cardinals in, sure. in the Roman yeah. Catholic Church. Okay. Um, and then they start spreading rumors that, um, that Anacletus was descended from a Jewish convert, uh, Jewish convert, which knowing your Bible, you would think, who cares, right? They're a convert. So, uh, so were the apostles. Yeah. Including Peter. Yeah. On whom's throne you 
declared a sit. Yeah. So Bernard of, but Bernard of Clairvaux, our good friend, wrote to the German emperor that it is a disgrace for Christ that a Jew sits on the throne of St. Peter's. <laughs> it's like, do you not know what ethnicity Peter was? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and, all, and the, the rumor was just that he had a Jewish convert in his background. Yeah. Like, he's not, he's not like a non-convert. Like, it's just he has a little bit of Jewish ancestry. I did Ancestry.com. I'm like 2% Ashkenazi Jew found that out. That's kind of cool. It'd be like, they'd be like, no, you can't be the Pope because like, it just doesn't make any sense. The foundation of the church, it, 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 again, it just goes to show just the ridiculousness that still comes through amongst these highly learned, highly influential church leaders. Yeah, so when I when I preach through the latter half of a gospel, mm. one of the things that I really work on is the fact that the Bible often says the Jews, mm -hmm. and what it means is not universally all Jews. Yeah. Right? But by and large, yeah, the majority. And enough that you would use that as uh, as a saying, mostly talking about leadership, mm -hmm. but also talking about the populace. Mm -hmm. And that creates confusion for people mm -hmm. who think, well, it says Jews, it must mean with you know, without exception, mm -hmm. which is not the case. Mm -hmm. But this creates in history an anti-Semitic, idea in the church mm -hmm. that runs for a really long time yeah uh yeah. you can still find factions of that where people will be like oh well the jews did this and so yeah you know this is all on them that kind of thing it's but as far as common now yeah. right it, it would only be a fringe group now yeah. and but but as far as a common thought within the church it's pretty strong for a millennium yep for sure. And and all the way through we even see the reformers using yep. this kind of language. Yep. So uh it's a it's a pretty modern thing mm -hmm. that we've started saying, hey, you know what? The Jesus was a Jew, the yep. apostles were Jews, and the early church was Jewish, mm -hmm. and we have to get past this. Yeah. Yeah. We are the ones who've been grafted into right. the remnant of Israel that right. who were faithful and who did receive their Messiah. Um, and that's that's the situation. The church is not a separate thing. It yeah. is a continuation of the faithful Jews and the unfaithful were that's disinherited. That, and that's to say as ridiculous as Bernard's comments are. Yeah. They lack yeah. They're they're pretty much universal and, and would have existed in most centuries mm -hmm. as a reasonable argument. Yeah. So much so that they thought, hey, let's start this rumor and, and that'll be enough. Mm -hmm. So so whether or not Anacletus was part Jewish or not um, is kind of irrelevant. He holds the title in, now in history, looking back, they call him an anti-pope. Uh, but one could argue, I mean, he was, he was the Bishop of Rome. He was the one in Rome and he stayed there and ruled from there until he died eight years later. Mm -hmm. So for eight years later, you've got one Pope who history now says was not the real Pope uh, in Rome. And then the, the true Pope kind of, the I guess, true Bishop of Rome in, in, wasn't in Rome. Um, but the thing is, like, this isn't unique. There are actually, you can look up lists, there have been dozens of these anti-popes over the years. Um, some of them only last a short little while. There's a feud over an election and it gets sorted out in a few months. But some last even longer than Anacletus. Um, in a few instances, you have alternate papal succession lines. 
So not only do you have two popes, but then those popes, when they die, there's new successors, and you have two lines of popes going at the same time. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we're even going to get to a point down the road where there's three at a time, which is fun. Um, which, we say this because the, the, whole, the Roman Catholic doctrine of, you know, the having Peter's seat and being the Bishop of Rome, being the voice of God, the singular uh, source of spiritual authority or supreme authority on earth. If you look at church history, um, there are multiple times where you have multiple people claiming that. And mm-hmm. so what they do in retrospect is they look back and they say, okay, this guy was the real one and this guy wasn't. And then here, this guy was real and this one wasn't. And they trace a line of quote unquote true popes. But in the moment, like, how do you, how do you determine that? Right? Like, it's just, I don't know, to the, you know, history's written by the victors, I guess. Is it that kind of situation? I mean, yeah, I, I think so. And, and the idea of, of apostolic secession mm-hmm. as your authority is not given to us in scripture. It's not the expectation of the church. I think Paul would have talked about it in the epistles. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he would have appointed Timothy and Titus without making these kinds of notions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually see the apostles themselves just kind of fade away in Scripture. Some of them are only mentioned to say that they were one of the apostles, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, claiming this as an authority and, and the whole, like, we're the true church because of this clear line— mm-hmm. It, it's it's just a, it, biblically it's a non-starter. Yeah. Historically, it's it's fudged a little bit. It's dubious for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, just it's it's a thing. It's a thing that's happening and continues to happen throughout throughout church history. They, you don't see it as much anymore in the Roman Catholic Church. You mm-hmm. haven't had an anti-pope in a few hundred years. Um, It'd but be exciting though. It would be. It would be actually with some of the stuff that's going on right now with the current pope and what he's saying. Who knows? They could be primed yeah. for it. Uh, could you imagine? You have like a, like a conservative Roman Catholic Church and a liberal Roman Catholic Church duking it out. It'd be fun. Sorry, I shouldn't. I shouldn't make light of that. But, anyways. Uh, <laughs> so in the following decade, uh, Bernard is kind of involved in this as well. There's another crusade that's launched, the Second Crusade, and Bernard is really at the center of this one. Oh yeah, like he essentially single-handedly launches it to some degree. Um, because they're like, we need a spokesperson. Well, so yeah. So essentially the Christian, the Christian kingdoms in the Middle East are falling because the Islamic world has finally, uh, stopped fighting each other and, Mm -hmm. and are unified and, and start taking back Jerusalem and taking all these lands. Um, and so Bernard is alarmed at this news, um, and yeah, becomes a spokesperson on their behalf and decides to preach in support of taking the cross and being the honey tongue that he is did so successfully. Yeah, he's also speaking into a tinderbox. Oh yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Because you you have a generation. There a, a generation removed from uh a generation removed from the first crusade mm-hmm. which was victorious. Mm-hmm. And these the legends of these men and their efforts have just become the stories that children grow up with. Yeah. Right? They're all the Netflix shows of the time are about these great men mm-hmm. uh, singing songs about them and their endeavors. 
and it feels to them like maybe a time gone by, you know, and all of a sudden now is their chance to be that person, to be that hero that they grew up learning about. Mm -hmm. And, and of course they'll be victorious because look, we did it before. We'll, we'll do it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you get a honey tongue preacher. Yeah. And people are not, not like eventually stirred immediately by the end of the service, altar call rushing down the aisle. Oh yeah, ready kind to go. Of conversion. Yeah, it, but this second crusade was an utter failure. Uh, before we get into that second crusade, oh, he Bernard in this sermon mm-hmm. holds up a cross in in calling people to this work of God. Mm-hmm. Men run up, even take the cross from his hand and say, "I'll bear it." Mm-hmm. Then taking a fabric cloth. Uh, cloth, a fabric cloth. How you like that? Sure. A fabric cross and uh, and holding it up as a bit of a, a banner to it. Mm-hmm. People start ripping their robes mm-hmm. to make fabric crosses right there on the spot to the point that they run out of fabric wow. to make these crosses. For, and reportedly, Bernard takes off his own robe and starts shredding it wow. because all these people want their fabric crosses because... They're so amped and ready to go off on this crusade. Wow. It's like, it's on the spot. <laughs> it's kind of like when Peter preaches and thousands are baptized yeah. right on the spot. Yeah, it's like well, that. But this is signing up for war. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the crusade, it utterly fails. Um, oh. The Europeans, like, to, no, I'm not going to go into detail, but like, they just lacked cohesion. They bickered. They backstabbed each other. They had poor commanders in the field. They didn't account for proper supply lines. Again, they were fighting against a unified enemy this time, and and it's just it, it achieves virtually nothing. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux then feels personally responsible for this. Yeah, he actually writes a letter to the Pope and apologizes for the, the mentor of the Pope. Yeah, he failed. Yeah, he writes to he the Pope and wrong. says, "I'm sorry. It should have went better than this." And he does kind of still pin it a little bit on the oh, Crusaders. Yeah. He's like, "Well." I shouldn't have done this because I should have known in advance how sinful the Crusaders were going to be. And that's really the reason why it failed. Right. These men weren't repentant when they yeah. went into war. Yeah. And and that was the part of my sermon that they might have missed. Yeah. And and I mean, you could say, you know, if they're, they're bickering and backstabbing of each other on their way was part of the problem. So I guess, I mean, there's some sinfulness in that, I suppose. But, but uh, the, I mean, the real reason was just poor leadership. But it is a very skillful dodge. <laughs> it is. I, it is. I told you <laughs> that God was primed to deliver this land back into our hands and that we were going to do the work of God and could yeah. not fail. Yeah. I didn't account for the fact that you were unrepentant sinners. <laughs> and so God had to punish you for that. Yeah. I'm still right. Yeah. But yeah. sorry, it didn't work out like it could have. Yeah. And after this failed crusade, the whole Middle East ends up being united. Egypt, Syria, all of it um, united by a guy named Saladin. And uh, and he just kind of captures everything. And, and the, the uh, Europeans have they still have a little bit of a toehold in the Middle East, but not Jerusalem. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about a certain group um, of people who had a particular set of opinions and beliefs. And we, we start hearing about them around 1173, and they're, they're known as the Waldensians. 
And they're, they're called this because there was a guy named Peter Waldo, who was a wealthy merchant, who renounced his wealth. He wasn't a clergyman. He was a, a merchant. But he renounces his wealth, and he begins preaching and starts a Christian movement in uh, the Cotin Alps, which is kind of the border of France and Italy. And this group ends up being declared heretical by the Catholic Church. But the question is, were they were they heretics? So let me let me give you a list of some of their beliefs here. So they they would affirm what the Catholic Church says about the atoning death of Jesus, the triune Godhead, the incarnation of the Son, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Where they uh, differed mm-hmm. from the Roman Catholics is that they denied purgatory as an invention of the Antichrist, is what they called it. <laughs> Uh, they proposed an early form of universal priesthood of believers. So you didn't have to be a clergyman to read the scriptures. Right. Um, They would say that, you know, relics, these saintly relics weren't different than any other old bones. Mm -hmm. Uh, A pilgrimage was just a waste of your money. Holy water wasn't any better than rain water. You could eat meat any day you like. They denied transubstantiation. They translated the New Testament into the vernacular, which was a local dialect of early French. They rejected the idolatry, what they called the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church, and they considered the papacy to be the Antichrist of Rome. These are my boys. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is, this is, keep keep in mind, this is hundreds of years before Martin Luther. Yeah, this is 500 years, 400 years before Luther, Mm -hmm. but it's the theses. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. So, for their beliefs, they are persecuted. There's many of them burned at the stake. So, they're forced to gather in secret. They end up kind of moving around, living in remote places. But they persist. They persist until the Reformation happens. And when it does, they end up becoming in contact with John Calvin and Zwingli in particular. And if those names don't mean anything to you, they will in a couple months. Um and uh, and end up kind of becoming reformed. And so there's Waldensian churches that still exist today. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them went more the Methodist route, but most of them are would consider themselves reformed churches um, who hold to those kind of doctrines that came of the Reformation. But they can actually trace their history further back than uh, than the Reformation. So just an in- it was just interesting for me because like it, this group kind of exists on the periphery of church history. They don't. They didn't get a lot of attention in some of the the church history textbooks, but as I was reading up on them, I was like, "Wow, this is really interesting, right?" Yeah. This rich man who probably, you know, had the luxury of being wealthy enough that he knew how to read well, reads the Bible for himself, and in doing so, says, "Oh, oh, we we've got a whole lot of things wrong with this picture." Mm-hmm. Gives up his money, gives up his career, and and starts this movement and. And that's essentially what happens once, and that's what's going to happen hundreds of years later. Is like once people can read the Bible, the the Roman Catholic Church has problems. Yeah, and this is this is something that is existing in in the time period we're talking about. It, it still happens today. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of Catholics who have left Catholicism because they said. I just started reading my Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if we look at the at the tracts of where Catholic doctrine is in this time and where the Waldenians are in this time, mm-hmm. the difference is exposure to Scripture. Yeah. Because if we remember, Bernard is pleading with people. Pleading with the Pope. With the Pope. <laughs> hey, Pope, I got a 
book recommendation for you. It's called the Bible. Right. <laughs> and so and, and and so here's the thing. I, I was thinking about this last night. There's a chance that people listening to this podcast have found themselves in in a and what might feel, I hope not, but what might feel is a, a little bit of a slump to say is kind of more history than church history. And mm-hmm. I'm not really learning like I did at the beginning about the doctrines and the formations of these doctrines and the carrying mm-hmm. over of the church and all of those kinds of things that I expected from a church podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The reason is the dark ages are the dark ages of the church. Yeah. And... We have to do a lot of this to draw a bridge. It will pick up drastically in in the Reformation. Oh, yeah. And that devotional side of church history will be really highlighted Reformation on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? But what we can't do is leave a gap and cause people to say, well— how did we get here, right? Mm-hmm. We have to draw that bridge, yeah. and this is one of this is one of those moments that just sort of shows you the divergency, mm-hmm. but between where the Catholic Church takes a hard left mm-hmm. is is that these people come along and they're like, you know, read the Bible and and look into these things. It's not the first or the last time no. that the papacy will be called the Antichrist. Nope. Uh, there, there are churches today yeah. that believe that the biblical antichrist is the papacy. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite there. I know I kind of alluded to that. I would just say that the office of Pope is in itself antichrist, whether he is the antichrist is another, is something else, but sure. Dispensationalism as a whole mm-hmm. leans this way. Historicism leans mm-hmm. this way, right? Mm-hmm. They're really, really common modern Mm-hmm. eschatologies that that push towards that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here you have a group that is reading the Bible that says, we believe this, and another group being urged by one to start reading their Bible mm-hmm. says, you're heretics and you're all excommunicated. Yeah, yeah. But that happens when you call a guy the Antichrist. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> they're probably like, we don't care that we're excommunicated because you're a false church anyway. So right. <laughs> yeah. Like sticks and stones. And then they're like, well, well then we'll burn you at the stake. And so that's kind of what that's, yep. uh, that's what ends up happening. Um, to close out the 12th century, just to kind of round it all off. We started with the first crusade. Let's end with the third. Um, there will be others in history. The children's crusade. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Next week. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about that briefly next week. Cause that's weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> This is the last one of consequence. Yeah. This is the last one that actually achieves anything. And it's also called the King's Crusade uh, because three major monarchs, essentially the three most powerful men in Europe, Mm -hmm. Philip of France, Richard the Lionheart of England, and Frederick Barbarossa, the Emperor of Germany, they embark on this crusade to reconquer the Holy Land from Saladin, who is probably, other than Muhammad, probably the most famous Muslim who's ever lived, um, really Really interesting political military commander. If you're into military history, Saladin is, is he just wiped the floor with everyone until Richard the Lionheart shows up and they kind of finally meet their match. Um, and if you're into pop culture, mm-hmm. Richard the Lionheart mm. being gone on crusade yeah, means this is the setting of Robin Hood. Yeah, good King Richard is away. Evil Prince John is ruling in England. 
and uh, Robin saves the day. Robin is yeah stealing from the rich and giving to the needy. Um, yeah, I mean the whole Robin Hood thing is kind of folklore. Sure, but John did kind of suck. But a historic, <laughs> a historical setting. Yeah, that's the setting for sure. Yeah, good King Richard is is off with the army on crusade. Um, again, we don't have to go into huge detail because it's not a military podcast. But they were they were largely successful and they captured a lot of territory along the Mediterranean coast of what is now Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. Um, but they couldn't take Jerusalem. They they couldn't take it, um, and so the Muslims hold Jerusalem while the Christians kind of conquer a big chunk of the rest of Israel. Um, the Muslims do agree to allow unarmed Christian pilgrims to enter the city. So I guess that's a, that's a win for them, I suppose. Um, and so the Europeans establish once more the kingdom of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's not actually in their kingdom of Jerusalem <laughs> and their capital city is like acre or tire or something. It's like some other, but that's a city. detail. That's <laughs> a detail. You know, the kingdom of Jerusalem, but you know what? Actually, this reminds me, there's a lot of States where like the, the city that's named after this, that has the same name as the state isn't in like Kansas city. Isn't in Kansas. Yeah. It, it just, sits on the border. Kansas city, Kansas is very small and insignificant. Kansas city, Missouri is the city that you know of. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's just like, it's, it's just interesting that it, right. it's kind of like that. I mean, not exactly, but anyways. Yeah. Uh, also, the establishment of some universities that are still in operation oh, today. Oh, true. Yeah, good, good point. And this yeah. time period just as a historical stamp, mm-hmm. right? So you think about all of this stuff as like this bizarre ancient thing, mm-hmm. uh, but the University of Paris mm-hmm. and Oxford University yeah. have been operating without cease since this time. Which is crazy to think. Uh, I saw a tweet. I, I should have looked it up and solidified it here. Uh, of I can't remember if it was Paris or Oxford. This is this story is going That's poorly. Fine. But anyway, someone took a picture of this ancient library from the outside. Mm-hmm. And they're like, can you imagine if your life's work was to sit in this place mm-hmm. reading ancient literature and discussing it with your friends yeah in a tradition that has been going on for a thousand years yeah and the guy responded to it was a prof there in that library and said that is my literal life <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool that, that's pretty that cool. for for a thousand years 1100 years yeah those wow. buildings mm-hmm. have been furthering education mm-hmm. it's it's incredible when you see these old links yeah like we we drive around we're like oh that's a that's an old house yeah, that that's been around for a while. No. Yeah. There is nothing in North America <laughs> that has even come close to this. Yeah. To these things that are still in operation. Yeah. Like the oldest, the oldest buildings in the town we live in, I think, are still less than 200 years old. So. Right. Someone, one of our listeners might know of one. If you if you're one of our listeners and you live in Stratford and you know of a building that's still standing that's greater than 200 years old, let me know because I'd love to see. My it. house is 1914. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is probably. Around that too, maybe a little newer, but mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, I'm out of coffee. Yeah, me too. All right. So thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, and is produced by Alex Walker. Have See, a good day. see you next time. <laughs>